we kind of struggled with coming up with the name of it because we didn't want to do something that was like purposefully controversial or difficult. And then it needed to be something that was oh, like, it, yeah, he actually wanted to call Kyle suggested we call this group. No women allowed, but allowed like a L O U D. Like you can't speak aloud, which is super clever. Um, yeah. Yeah. But we decided on half the church instead. But the bigger thing, the bigger problem we had with names was that we couldn't come up with one that didn't make it sound like this group was just for women. You know what I mean? So there was a lot of names that we thought or that were suggested. And it was like, yeah, but that sounds like a women's group. And we want some men here, even if uh, many of them are not going to show up. So, Yeah. For today, just for today, he's holding down the fort. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, thank you guys for being here. We're excited. Um, this is going to be an amazing group. And I just want to say thanks for signing up for it. It's going to be our um, pleasure to kind of walk through some of these things with you guys. We've been looking forward to doing this group for a long time. Um, we kind of first started talking about doing this like way early summer or even at the end of last semester. And it was kind of like, I don't know, is that a, a worthy, not a worthy topic, but is it a topic people are really going to be interested in and that sort of thing. And um, there were all of these situations many of which we're going to be sharing with you throughout the group that kind of reaffirmed, yeah, this is an issue and it's something that needs to be addressed. There are questions that we want to help answer and, um, you know, that sort of thing. And so, yeah, we, we've been thinking about this group for a long time and we're, we're really looking forward to uh, to what we've got. Huh? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I just want to, from the top, say that the topic on women in ministry can be kind of polarizing. I've personally experienced that. And here at Connect, um, there's a lot of people with all different religious backgrounds, and everybody's welcome at Connect Church. And um, our goal here is to have unity in the essential Christian teachings, Mm -hmm. liberty and non-essential doctrine, and charity in all of our beliefs. So we believe the best instead of assuming the worst Mm -hmm. of people. And so wherever you and I stand... Um, uh, on the subject of women in ministry, it's not an essential doctrine, right? So, so we're going to stay solid on the essential doctrines. There's liberty, there's grace in between where we fall on this. Mm-hmm. And we do hope that what we speak to you today, like you're leaning in, you're learning, but this is how, this is the conclusion that we've come to. But study on your own, mm-hmm. lean in on your own. Yeah. Don't just take our word for it. Read books, listen to podcasts. Um, and and trying to decide why you believe what you believe. Yeah, this is going to be essentially a seminary level class. Like this, we're going deep, y'all. Like if you ever wanted to nerd out on Greek grammar, this is the group. We're going to do a lot of that. And if you're like, oh my God, I signed up for the wrong group. Um, don't worry. Okay. We're going to walk through this together. We're not going to leave you behind. But here's the deal. This topic is so important. And it's so fraught with different perspectives and controversy. We need to really hone in on what we're talking about. We need to know that the English translations that we read were originally written in Greek. And so if you want to actually understand the nuances of the words that were written and things like that, you don't read it in English. You don't read it in Spanish. You read it in Greek to the very best of your ability. And so we're going to be diving deep onto that. We're going to be talking a lot about church history. We're going to be talking a lot about um, cultural history uh, in a couple of particular cities and New Testament letters and stuff. This is going to be real deep. But I think it's going to be very satisfying for you guys so that when we get done, you're not going to walk out of here saying, yeah, I think women should have like a strong place in the church because like that feels right. You know, Mm. it just feels wrong to to like silence women. That's that's not the kind of God I serve. That's not the kind of world that I want to live in. Who cares? I don't care what kind of God you want to serve. I don't care what kind of world you want to live in or I want to live in. We want to know what the scripture says. We want to be able to articulate and back up whatever position it is that we take with the scriptures themselves to be able to know how to rightly divide the word of truth like the Bible calls us Mm -hmm. to. Cool. That's enough preamble. Let's get right into it. And we're going to start with the controversy. The controversy are the Bible verses themselves, right? We read here, and I've got them noted on your sheet, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 through 35. This is what the Bible actually says. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. They must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. 
All right. Did anybody not know that that verse was in the Bible? Anybody like, wait, what? I'm new to the faith. I'm new to the Bible. Okay. One or two of you guys actually didn't know. And I'm glad that you're encountering it here and not out in a conversation with somebody uh, outside the walls of the church or on social media or whatever, because we want to, we want to equip you to be able to articulate what these verses do mm-hmm. and do not mean. But that's not the only passage. In fact, that's not even the strongest passage on this subject. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verses 11 to 14, Amber, why don't you break the uh, command here and read these verses out loud for us? (laughs) A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay. So these are like, these are very blunt verses, aren't they? And you can understand how somebody would whip out these two verses and, and you know, think of a church like Connect in which women speak from the stage or we have female pastors. And, and they say, essentially, do you not know that the Bible says women have to be silent and they can't teach or have authority? Like, trust me when I tell you, I get asked this question a lot, a lot. And I guess I'm grateful that people who ask me this question just assume I'm stupid, like I'm ignorant, and I just don't know that those verses are in there because the alternative is that I'm liberal and rebellious, that I just don't take the Bible very seriously. And if there's something written in there that I don't like, it offends my modern sensibilities, then I can ignore it. Well, that's not the case, okay? Um, I often point out that I get two kinds of emails as a pastor. The first one is from people outside of the church, and it is nearly always my stance on LGBTQ issues. Outside the church, that's what nearly everybody's concerned with. Inside the church, 90% of every question and email I get is about our stance on women in ministry. This has been an ongoing, uh, I don't want to say issue, but certainly question. In some ways, it's been a battle that we fought here at Connect Church throughout the years because from the very beginning, going all the way back to our launch, September 11th, 2016, we have had a co-lead pastor that's female, my wife, Amber. We have had females on staff. From the very first week, we've had women that have spoken on stage in front of men. (gasps) Can you believe it? Um, We've done these things. And um, that's led to a lot of questions, a lot of suspicion. Um, The truth is that um, we've had people leave the church over this issue. And I don't just mean a few. I had somebody that left the church that many of you guys know a couple months ago over this particular issue. Um, We have people that come and visit for the very first time and they are like, I love it, until they hear the phrase Pastor Amber. And once they hear the phrase Pastor Amber, it's like, oh no, this this church doesn't really take the Bible seriously. So yeah, I guess I I can't call this my my new home. Um, We have had um, partners. So when we first got our start, you know, there were like 60 of us or something. It wasn't a very large congregation. And we had to rely on some outside financial partnerships through our denomination and through churches in the US that like knew us or they were connected through our denomination. And they were like, yeah, we really like you guys, you know? And so we'll support you. We'll send you $200 a month, which was like a huge sum of money early on. Um, and then they were like, oh, wait, you guys are one of those churches. You have lady pastors. Well, we can't be a part of that. And so they pulled their funding. Like we had partners, friends, people that we developed close ministry relationships with. Some of you guys were here in the very beginning when we would have mission teams come up from the U.S. And some of them, despite the fact that they were here for a couple of summers and they did ministry shoulder to shoulder with you guys, they eventually decided, oh no, we do not agree on this theological issue. Therefore, we cannot support you guys. So like this has been um, something that has continued to rear its head throughout our ministry here at the church. But it's not just outside, it's also inside. We have a lot of women. Some of you guys are here right now and you're unsure if you should follow what you believe the calling and gifting on your life is. You're like, man, I feel like God has gifted me to teach. I feel like God has called me to step up and to lead, but I don't, I see these verses and I don't really know if that's the Holy Spirit? Is it a demon? Am I giving into the culture? What's really going on here? Then we have men 
And they sit in the audience on Sunday mornings and they see a female on stage, a female even preaching. And they're thinking to themselves, wow, that's pretty good. Like that's a, I, I'm getting something out of this, but am I supposed to? Cause like these verses say women aren't supposed to teach men. So like, this is helpful, but maybe I really shouldn't be listening to this. I don't know. What should I do? I've had those conversations. And then we've got family and friends, like legitimately our family and friends. You guys have family and friends. And they're like, well, you go to a liberal church because they have female pastors or whatever the case may be. So this has been a, an ongoing kind of conversation, issue, point of contention, that sort of thing. I'm curious, and I want to hear from you guys. We're going to pause and ask questions throughout. Have you guys ever experienced any of these like yourselves? Um, have you ever wondered, like, could God call somebody like me? Have you ever had a family member that was like, oh, I don't think you should go to that church because they let women teach or anything like that? Any experience from your side? Yeah? Yeah. Anybody want to share a, a word or two on that? You don't have to, but... Uh, well, I grew up in a Baptist church, mm -hmm. and that's what they believed. So it was really hard. I think they kind of went away from that somewhat, but mm -hmm. still, like, not all the pastors had to be men. Mm -hmm. um, I led me and another kind of friend of mine led worship sometimes and even that was like i don't know <laughs> mm -hmm. sounds familiar doesn't it yeah, it does. mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i don't think you're alone in that certainly we've had to wrestle with those questions we connect as a baptist church you guys I don't know if you know that or not sometimes people are surprised they're like oh! i'm like what do you even know what it means to be a baptist well not really but you know it's like okay um it's funny because in a lot of baptist circles um the subordination of women, complementarianism, we're going to define these terms. If you don't know them, that's okay. We're going to define them tonight. But um, these particular issues have become hallmarks of being a Baptist, which historically is not true at all. What we're going to learn together in the course of this series is that historically, Baptists have been some of the most supportive denominations when it comes to women in ministry. It wasn't until about the 1920s to the 1950s that there was a hard line that started to be drawn. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is and where it comes from. Okay. Anybody else? It's like, yeah, I've had these conversations or issues or anything. Simone? I went on a date once with oh, a guy. Yeah. And uh, he told me that I should really pray and spend time with God because women aren't supposed to be in leadership, mm -hmm. um, not even leading worship, uh, or um, basically telling a man in any kind of authoritative way how he should, you know, live or behave or mm. anything like that. Um, and uh, that I should come back to him after. Wow. <laughs> wow. After God uh, spoke to me about it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's. Yeah, never thought of me. He wanted to see me again. I was like, everybody. Yeah. It's unfortunate because we hear that particular situation quite often. You know, it's so hard to find somebody who is like committed to their faith when you're single and then you find them. And then you discover, oh, we disagree on this issue and we disagree in such a way that like we can't get past it. It's heartbreaking. It doesn't need to be that way. And I'm sad that you've experienced that. We have a guy that's experiencing that right now in our church. He's dating a girl that does not attend our church. And she's very hesitant because she's like, well, I just don't believe that women can be pastors. So how can you be going to a biblical church? Right. So this is a, a situation that many have had to deal with. I was going to save this story for the end, but it's very fitting, especially after that story. Um, so I grew up in a very hard complementarian church, and we're going to talk about what that means. But basically, women can't do much of anything. And um, I was in that church for 18 years. That's, that's the church that my mom brought me up in. Um, the interesting thing about my upbringing is it was just me and my mom. There was no, like my dad didn't go to church and I only saw him every other weekend. And so there was no like forcefulness at home. Like I'm the, the head, I'm the leader. And so um, it was kind of a foreign concept to me. And I didn't even realize it existed in my church until I was a teenager. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it. It existed, but I didn't see it. And so my very first ministry opportunity, I took the leadership position. I'm not sure if they would have called it that of youth choir director. 
So it was a big deal. And the youth pastor was new and he offered this position to me at 15 years old. And um, I felt super special. And I remember running up to our pastor and being like, guess what? I'm the new youth choir director. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I could see it in his eyes. Like, I didn't approve this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, and so something interesting about my pastor growing up, and I want to be gentle about the subject because it's not my story. But before he planted that church that I grew up in, he was married. He went to the same Bible college that I graduated from was married to a woman, and then she decided that she had a calling on her life to preach and pastor. And they ended up getting a divorce, whether it was his decision, her, I don't know. But they got divorced because of this. And so then he planted this church, got remarried, and moved forward in a heavy complementarian mindset. And it, it didn't occur to me until much later, there was no way that he could have ever deviated from this or grown away from this mindset because it was like also, you know, his lifestyle. Like it would have been wrong to divorce. Like in his mind, that was heresy. And so he was okay to get divorced. But if he changed his opinion on this at all, then that was wrong and he was wrong for getting a divorce. Anyway, so so I'm this youth choir director. I have no clue what I'm doing, no experience other, sing- other than singing a solo and growing up in the church singing. And so I'm trying my best. I don't even know how to do patterns of leading somebody in a choir. <laughs> I'm just like, you know, and, <laughs> and there's um, the stage and then there's like this um, wooden platform and then there's the choir loft. Right. So if you've grown up in church and a traditional church, for sure, you know what I'm talking about. But on the stage, there were these throne chairs, oh, yeah. as I like to call them, like these extra the large yeah. throne chairs that the dudes sit in. And so our previous youth choir director, when they would lead, they would sit in this chair. And so I went up there when I was about to lead a special like we're about to sing. I sat in the throne chair. I had no idea that this was wrong. (laughs) And it was such an awkward thing. After it's all, the service is over, one of the deacons or somebody came and we had the most awkward conversation of, listen, you have to go back and sit with the youth group and then you can come for it. You cannot sit in this chair. And that was the first moment that I was like, oh, like this is a little weird. And I didn't realize that just because I was a woman, it could have, like, maybe it was because I was a teenager, but really I think it was because I was a woman that that this was keeping me from doing something other people were allowed to do. You're not familiar with 1 Timothy 11, which says, thou shalt not allow the woman to sit in the throne. (laughs) It's not a real verse. I'm just kidding. Uh, One of the things that I've realized, and we'll move on, we'll get to the notes here, but one of the things that I've realized is that... um, This has been uh, a subject, it's been an experience that many of you guys have dealt with in ways that I'm only beginning to understand. Um, It's impacted and affected my wife in ways that I'm only beginning to understand. It still plays out in ways that I don't fully get because I'm a guy. And so doors are just naturally opened for me, but I'm starting to get a better sense of it, I think. And um, we're trying to do our best to, to, you know, ensure that women who have a call, um, women who are gifted and that they get the appropriate opportunities to lead. Okay. So we referenced these, um, these verses. We highlighted the two major passages. There are a handful of others that are also cited in this particular debate from the Bible. And they all say very, very similar things. And they seem to be so direct and so obvious, right? Women cannot lead. They cannot preach. They cannot pastor. If you take 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, some verses from 1 Peter. If you take those as universal truths, then women simply cannot fulfill these functions or roles full stop. And for a long time, Amber and I actually both agreed with that. We've been on the other side of this debate. 
we have been full complementarian. There were times in our lives where we could have spouted all the arguments and told you why women weren't allowed to do this or that or whatever. We've always been a little softer with it. And we've always kind of um, occupied a space that allowed more opportunities than what was typical in traditional churches and things like that. But like there was a time where we knew all the arguments and believed all the arguments sincerely. But I have to tell you, I started to notice some inconsistencies. See, I didn't grow up in the church. You guys know that, right? So I started going when I was, when I don't know, 15, 16, 16 years old, I think, something like that. And so I'm, I'm gobbling up the Bible. I'm getting my pastor and my youth pastor to teach me everything because I'm so hungry for spiritual things. And I see this in there and I'm like, whoa, that's interesting. You know, so I want to know more. And I'm taking the Bible very seriously, but I start to notice some inconsistencies. Like, for instance, in the churches that I've been a part of, women have never been silent. Never. Women serve like as greeters on Sunday morning. Um, they're always the children's leaders. You know how excited like kids ministry leaders get when a dude volunteers to go back into youth ministry? Why? Because it's rare. Because women are constantly with the children. And you're like, yeah, that's because women are allowed to lead children. They're not supposed to lead men. But what does the scripture say? It says women are be silent in the church. Silent. Well, if you're up here teaching kids, you're not being silent. You are violating right. the literal reading of this particular passage. Uh, women were allowed to sing on stage and in the congregation. Well, that's strange because the verses say women should keep their mouth shut in church. So even these very conservative, complementarian churches, they have all of these opportunities for women to speak publicly, to speak at all. Uh, I've never seen a pastor get mad when a woman in the congregation says, amen, preacher, that's good. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's okay for you to speak up then if you're gonna, if you're gonna amen the message, right? So that didn't, you know, that didn't really sit with me very well because that seems inconsistent with a literal reading of these verses. And then I started to notice that like Christians in general, kind of pick and choose verses from the New Testament that they do and don't follow, okay? Um, this might be a scary concept or a scary thought to you. Don't let it freak you out too much. I can explain some of it, okay? In fact, most of this um, whole course is going to be explaining stuff like this. So for instance, um, if you take a literal reading of 1 Corinthians 11, women are not supposed to be in church without a covering on their head. Period. Straight up. It's what the Bible says. That's why Mennonite women, Amish women, they always got the little right here on the top. You see them at the grocery store. You see that is taken directly from 1 Corinthians 11. They take that as a transcultural universal teaching for women and they actually live it out. But in other churches, uh, it's like, oh no, that's that was cultural. That was time bound. We don't have to do that today. We just want to honor the principle behind it. Well, wait a sec. How come 1 Corinthians 11 is like it's time bound and it's not for every woman at all times, but 1 Corinthians 14 is. We're going to discover Paul uses the exact same arguments mm -hmm. to justify women wearing head coverings in the assembly as he does women keeping silent in the assembly. So there's an inconsistency there, okay? Um, hey, let's just be real. Uh, women are constantly wearing gold, makeup, fancy hairstyles. When 1 Timothy chapter number two says that women should not dress themselves up that way, that's unbecoming for a Christian woman. Well, what do we do with that? Oh, that was cultural. That was for then. This is now. It's a little bit different. Well, how come? 1 Timothy two telling women not to wear makeup and gold jewelry and elaborate hairstyles is the same paragraph that says women have to keep their mouths shut in church. Same paragraph. So why is it that Sentences one and two are universal and sentences three and four, oh, that's cultural. We don't have to follow that today, okay? We're gonna talk about all of this. Uh, you notice that men have long hair. First Corinthians 11 says that it is a shame. It is a shameful thing for a man to have long hair. It's what the Bible says. Now, there are all sorts of interpretive issues with this, like what actually constitutes long hair. I'm growing out my hair. It's disgusting right now. It's a sweet little mullet I'm working on. But anyway, <laughs> is this long hair? Well, according to some people, yes, this is long hair. But then we've got guys that have shoulder length or longer. So how do we handle those verses that like clearly modern Christians are not obeying? Um, Acts 15 says Christians cannot eat meat that has any blood in it. And 
people eat blood sausage in the world. Like weird people, but people do it, right? <laughs> um, First Timothy 5 says, if your stomach's upset, drink a little wine. It'll make you feel better. No pastor is telling their congregation, if you've got an upset tum-tum, go get yourself a bottle of Syrah and enjoy. They're not doing that. So what we have here is we have all of these verses that exist and we are not consistent in how we apply and follow them. So the first point that you're going to see there on your notes is that modern church practice is contrary to a universal understanding of these verses. Modern church practice is contrary to a universal understanding. Because look, if you talk to complementarians, hardline complementarians in particular, they're simply going to say, we just do what the Bible says. But if you start actually fact-checking that statement, you're like, yeah, not so much, buddy. There's a lot that we are not doing, at least the way it's literally written in the Bible, okay? But it's not just modern church practice that seems to be at odds with these verses that we've read. I also noticed that there were people in the Old Testament that were not just doing what the Bible commands when it comes to women. Um, so we have stories of Eve and Miriam, Deborah, Ruth, <laughs> Esther, Jael, Hulda, the Proverbs 31 lady, and a whole bunch of other women that were not silent and submissive. Why is that? Well, one argument could be made. That was the Old Testament. Times were different. We're following the New Testament commands, and we'll get there in just a moment. But like, there are a crazy number of women in the Bible, old and new, who seem to violate, if not the letter, certainly the principle of these verses that are usually trotted out to keep women in their seats and quiet. Um, I, I'm curious, how many of you guys were familiar with the names that I just said? Some of them were pretty obvious. Like, I think we all know Eve, but like, is everybody cr pretty confident with who Holda is? Okay, a couple of you guys are, most of you are not. I was like, yeah, hold up. Okay, I know when I was doing research and stuff, I'm like, all right, what did she do again? I know she's important, Old Testament. Like, I don't know, around the time of the Kings, what did she do? Like, she has an incredibly important moment in a pivotal time in Israel's history. And I've never heard a sermon on her. And I'm a pastor. I've got degrees in the Bible. I've read the Bible more times than I can count. And I'm like, oh yeah, what did she do? Not good, not good. So Old Testament practice, that's the next blank, is contrary to a universal understanding of these verses. Modern practice is contrary, Old Testament practice. And again, you could probably guess where the next one's going. New Testament practice is contrary to a universal understanding of these verses as well. So you jump over into the New Testament and you find that uh, throughout the, the New Covenant, the New Testament, there are all of these women that are doing the exact same sorts of things that they were doing in the Old Testament. And in fact... The Apostle Paul, the dude who wrote the controversial verses that we read at the beginning of our session together, he commended and endorsed, he commissioned and sent several women to go do public ministry. But we don't ever talk about them. So in the New Testament, of course, we read about Mary, the mother of Jesus. We read about Anna, the prophetess in Luke chapter number two. We read about the women at the tomb. Did you guys know the first missionaries, the first people to proclaim the resurrection were women? It wasn't the 12 disciples. It was a handful of women. Uh, in Romans 16, we read about Phoebe, the deaconess. Have you guys ever heard of Phoebe before? Very rarely does it ever come up. Uh, in Romans 16, we read about Junia, the female apostle. What y'all know about that? Hello. Oh, that one is going to be fun. You're going to love hearing about Junia in a couple of weeks. We read about Priscilla. The Bible tells us specifically in the book of Acts that Priscilla taught Apollo, a man, an evangelist in the early church, one of Paul's earliest converts, Priscilla, a woman, heard him preach, pulled him aside after the service, and the book of Acts says she more accurately explained to him the word of God. A woman corrected a man after he preached in the church. Woo! Okay, that's recorded in the Bible, you guys. And then we read about Philip, who was a member of the early church. He had four virgin daughters that the Bible calls prophetesses. It says that they, they were prophetesses, that either they had the gift or they occupied the office. We'll talk a little bit about that. So my guess is you're familiar with some of those names. And some of them, you're like, no, nah, I, I really couldn't tell you anything about her or what she did. And that's a problem. 
The fact that these women who don't conform to the archetype that's kind of been established throughout church history, that um, don't like fit really nicely into the 1 Corinthians 14 or 1 Timothy 2 mold, these women that don't fit into the mold nicely, we tend to just ignore them. This is one of my frustrations when somebody comes to me or Amber and they say, well, you're just ignoring 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. And it's like, yeah, bro, well, you're ignoring Romans 16. You know, you're ignoring the book of Acts. What did, what did God say um, in Acts chapter number two at the day of Pentecost? He quotes the, uh, the prophet Joel and he says, God promised that in the last days he would pour out his spirit and that sons and daughters yes. would prophesy. And Peter says, in your presence, this scripture is fulfilled. So like we live in the time in which God says, I'm going to pour out my spirit and men and women are going to speak for me. Authoritatively, by the way. So we see New Testament uh, practice does not support a universal understanding or application of these uh, controversial sections. The guy who wrote uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 14, and 1 Timothy 2 clearly allowed women in other circumstances to teach, to lead, and to have authority. We'll talk about why. And then the last one here is that early church practice was contrary to a universal understanding of these verses. So if you read church history, if you go back and you read the early church fathers, these are the, um, the leaders in the church over the first 300 years or so. What you find out is that for the first 300 years, there was always controversy about women in ministry, but it was kind of a thing. You know what I mean? Like some guys would take these passages, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 1 Timothy 2, and they be like, I don't think women are supposed to be doing this. But it was really abundantly clear that women were actively involved in ministry for the first 350 years. We have so many references to women as prophetess, as evangelist, as deaconess, as even elder in certain cases. Um, and so like there is a lot of, of evidence that for the first few hundred years in the early church, women held roles that they are barred from holding in the modern church, okay? So we'll talk more about all of this. Next week, we are gonna spend our entire time together talking about Genesis 3. The week after that, we're gonna spend all of our time talking about these Old Testament women who kind of broke the mold and had leadership and authority. All these names that we mentioned, we're just gonna spend a little time just vignetting each of their stories. The week after, we're gonna do the exact same thing with the New Testament. So we're gonna talk about who Junia was. We're gonna talk about Philip's daughters. We're gonna talk about Anna the prophetess and, and all of these different things. So we're gonna dig into their stories. But what I want you to understand is that when this debate comes up, it is almost always framed as one side just does what the Bible says and the other side chooses to ignore what the Bible says. And what I want you to recognize is that we all pick and choose what's universal and what's cultural, what is um, transcultural and what is time bound. We all do that to a certain degree. So the question is not whether or not we choose to follow everything literally. It's why we choose to follow verses literally or not. The interpretive question, the hermeneutic, that's the big theological word that we use, the hermeneutic, how we read, interpret, and apply the verses, that is where the issue lies, okay? Um, so uh, you'll notice at the back, I've got kind of this big, bold statement. It turns out when you survey the entirety of scripture, it's only in the ancient cities of Corinth and Ephesus that women are commanded to be silent and under the authority of men. There are two locations, two places in which women are said not to speak in church, not to minister, not to exercise or usurp, take authority over men. It's in the city of Corinth, and that's the um, city and the church to which the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians were written. And then one thing that you may not know, we'll talk about this more in a future session, was that Timothy, so the letter to 1st Timothy, Timothy was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. So when we read in the Bible, the book of Ephesians and the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy, we're talking to the church at large and the leadership in particular of this one congregation. 
So what we discover is that there are two congregations that Paul gave instructions to in which women are commanded to be silent and under the authority of men. In other congregations, in other regions of the Roman Empire, Paul was like sending women out as missionaries. He was commending them. In fact, we're going to learn that Phoebe was responsible for delivering, reading, and actually helping to interpret the letter, the epistle to the Roman church. He actually commissioned her, gave her authority to go to the Roman church and to deliver this sermon on his behalf. Literally, that's the way it would have worked. She would have shown up on a Sunday morning and in the church service, she would have read the book of Romans to the church. This is something that in many churches today, like that would, that would not, that would not happen. A woman could not get up and read Romans, uh, the entire book of Romans, because that would constitute her exercising authority. And yet Paul specifically told her to do this. So we have two cities in which he's like, hey, 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 women, you need to stop. You need to slow down. You need to be quiet. Elsewhere, he's like, ladies, go do your thing. Why? What was going on in those two cities and in those two churches that would necessitate that level of instruction and restriction? As it turns out, we're going to prove this. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this. There were a couple of unique circumstances going on in that church and in that city that were causing the women, in particular in the church, to be disruptive and to propagate false teaching. So Paul's problem, we will learn, is not women teaching. His problem is them teaching in a disorderly way false doctrine. That is what the Apostle Paul is prohibiting. And hear me now, that is something that should be prohibited in the church today. No women should be teaching in a disorderly manner. No women should be teaching false doctrine. And if there are women that are doing either one of those things, they need to sit down and be quiet. No men should be teaching in a disorderly way. No men should be teaching false doctrine. If men are doing either one of those two things, they should sit down and be quiet, okay? So let's talk about um, what complementarianism is and what egalitarianism is. Because we've been throwing around these words, but we haven't really defined them yet. So complementarianism codified by the Danvers Statement. The Danvers Statement, yeah. Yeah. Men and women bear the image of God equally, but distinctly. In short, men are created to lead and women were created to submit to male headship. Okay, so the idea here is that they are complementary. We complement one another. We are, I wouldn't say two halves of the same whole, but that we were designed for different functions and uh, we cannot take one another's place in the divinely created order. So complementarians would say, you guys are clearly designed to give birth. Men can't do it. We can't take that role. And clearly, based on what the scripture says, men were designed to lead. And you weren't designed to lead. It's not a bad thing, ladies. You just need to know it's different roles, different functions, but you're both created in the image of God. So just learn to embrace your role, embrace your spot, your function that God has given you. And then egalitarianism, the definition is men and women bear the image of God equally and without distinction to role or function. Leadership is based on gifting and ability, not gender. Okay, that last part is really key, that we are going to choose people who um, lead not because they're male or because they're female. You have to understand this. Nobody is saying like, no, women should be pastors. Like, no, not every woman should be a pastor. Not every man should be a pastor. We should be choosing, though, based on calling, based on gifting, based on ability, and not solely based on gender, mm-hmm. which is kind of one of those first lines in the sin that typically gets drawn. It's like you're a woman, doesn't matter how gifted, doesn't matter how called. Uh, unfortunately, this is just out of bounds for you, right? So um, these are two big terms. They get used a lot. We're going to use them pretty consistently. Uh, complementarianism is the conservative side that says that women and men have different different functions, and women should not teach, have authority, cannot preach, cannot be pastors, that sort of thing. Egalitarians tend to say, no, God has allowed both men and women, according to the New Testament, to lead. And um, really, the, the most accurate way to put this is, 
God, and I think there's a quote from um, a, a theologian named Craig Keener on the front here. And um, what he says is the Bible permits wi- uh, women's ministry under normal circumstances, but prohibits it in exceptional cases, in which case we should do the same thing. We should allow it in most circumstances. And there could be some circumstances and situations in which we say, no, women should not be teaching and leading. You might be thinking, well, I, what what would one of those situations be, Dan? Tell me. Um, consider a church planting couple or missionary couple that is working in the Middle East or North Africa. Um, In those cultures, a woman having authority in that way, teaching and preaching publicly would be counterproductive to people accepting the gospel. It's like, it is so egregious in their mind, they will never get past that and listen to the message. So in that case, a woman should be silent and submissive for the sake of the gospel. Now imagine some hypothetical situation in which we encounter a tribe in the Amazonian jungle and it's matriarchal and they are so freaked out by the idea of men having authority and preaching. So if Amber and I are missionaries there and in that context, they expect the woman to take the lead when it comes to teaching, then I should be submissive and say, for the sake of the gospel, you take the lead. What we do is we let somebody lead based on calling, ability, qualifications, and not solely based on gender. Okay. All right. Um, We note here on the back that there are several things that complementarians and egalitarians agree on. And this is important, you guys, because a lot of times we immediately want to divide. It's like, well, you believe this and I believe this and here are all my verses. Well, here are all my verses and we're just at odds right away. Okay. So it's important that we communicate a few of the things that they, you, these both, both of these groups universally agree on. The first is that men and women bear the image of God equally. Genesis 127, God creates man and woman in his image. And both groups would affirm that. Now, we're going to discover that it does get a little strange because particularly hardline complementarians will start to, um, what's the word I'm looking for, modify or couch that language a little bit. It's like, well, yes, women are created. However, this and this and this and this because of creation or because of the curse, they can't really do these things. You know, men can do any of them, but women not so much. And so like you do have to start to ask the question, if you're limiting women in role and function, at what point are you also limiting them in their being? If you're saying they are functionally subordinate, if you're saying they are functionally weaker or more susceptible to um, false teaching or, you know, something like that, at what point are you also saying that ontologically there is something deficient in women, right? We'll talk more about that in in the coming week. But in general, they would both agree that men and women bear the image of God equally. Men and women both have equal access to God. They have equal access to salvation through Jesus and the gifts of the Spirit, So no matter what end of the spectrum, all Christians would say that, okay? Um, Even the gift of prophecy? uh, Well, (laughs) um, also, uh, all all of these groups would agree that gender is God-ordained and good. And I mean good in the sense of like Genesis 1, and God saw that it was good. He created them male and female, and he saw that it was good. Both sides of this discussion would say gender is fixed at birth. It's not fluid. We shouldn't be switching back and forth. God created male and female for the benefit of society and the flourishing of humanity. So like um, oftentimes in this debate, uh, the more conservative side will look at the uh, more egalitarian side and they're like, well, you just believe that like the genders are interchangeable and there's no difference between men and women. It's like, no, that's not what it teaches at all. Very clearly there are differences and the differences are good and right and God ordained. And so we need to recognize that both sides of this discussion do affirm that. Um, And then lastly, both men and women play an integral role in the plan of God. So you go read Matthew 28, that's the great commission. There's no modifier qualification. It's not like, hey men, go into all the world and make disciples. It just says, now go, you guys, all of you, the men and the women's, go and <laughs> preach the gospel to all of creation, okay? Complementarianism itself is a bit of a fractured philosophy, and where a particular church, pastor, theologian would draw the line as to what women are allowed or not allowed to do is going to be a bit different, okay? So we tend to talk about uh, hard 
versions of hard complementarianism and soft complementarianism. Those are the two uh, blanks there, hard and soft. Um, a hard complementarian, like the hardest, okay, the one that is most conservative and strict, they would say that a woman should lead nowhere. There is no sphere of life in which a woman can exercise proper authority. God has given that to men and men holy inside the home, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, um, inside the home, outside the home, inside the church, in government business, women have no business leading whatsoever, okay? That's the hardest line of complementarianism. Uh, just a little to the, to the left of that, uh, we have the idea that women should lead inside the home, right? Man, that Proverbs 31 lady, she really knew how to run a household and she's a good example for y'all to follow, okay? So women have leadership in the home, but not anywhere outside. So not in business, not in government, and certainly not in the church. Those two positions tend to um, define or, or encompass what we would call hard complementarians, uh, complementarianism, and then soft complementarianism, is a little bit more relaxed. Uh, it would say that women can lead outside the home in government or business, but not in the church. So it's like, it's okay to have a lady prime minister. It's okay to have a, a woman boss or something like that, CEO or whatever. That's all good. But we can't have a pastor who was a female. That's where they would draw the line. And then the, the one that is literally right at the edge of egalitarianism is that women can do just about anything a man can with the exception of being a senior pastor or an elder in the church, all right? We'll talk about that position at length uh, in another session. So complementarianism is a lot less monolithic. And so if you're having a conversation with somebody and they are, you know, they're telling you, well, you can't have women in ministry and stuff. You need to decide or, or, or um, discover where do you actually draw the line? Where are women allowed to lead? And that will give you some sense of the discussion that needs to happen, how reasonable this person is or isn't. Like, frankly, I'm just not going to engage with somebody that says women cannot lead in any sphere whatsoever because they don't actually believe that. They're not consistent in doing that. If they go to the doctor and they need somebody to treat their illness and it's a female doctor in the emergency room, they're not going to be like, no, wait, wait, don't sew me up. Don't stitch me. Go get a man. They're not going to do that. You know what I'm saying? But that woman is exercising, exercising leadership and authority over them. And so you need to kind of figure out where the line is drawn and that's going to dictate uh, where the conversation is going to end up going. All right. So we've talked a lot about um, complementarianism and what it is, but I want to talk a little bit about egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And um, I want us to walk out of here understanding egalitarianism isn't just for women. Mm -hmm. This is for everybody. Yeah, that's right. And, and so we need to understand this is everyone can hold these positions in the church, outside the church, be a leader. God has empowered and gifted you. And it's more focused on the gifting from the spirit than it is anything else. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about women. And then what egalitarianism is not, I want to bring this up. Egalitarianism is not progressive Christianity. Mm -hmm. Does anyone know what that means? Anybody? anybody? Mm -hmm. So we're not going to, I could do a whole different connect group just on <laughs> progressive Christianity, but um, we're not going to get into this too much. But essentially, progressive Christianity throws out evangelical Christianity. So that urgency to share the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ it throws that out, pushes it to the side. That's not necessary. And it's not really Christianity at all. It's focusing on God is love. God loves everyone. And no matter what you believe and what you believe, we're all going to get there. And that sounds beautiful. And I'll tell you, in the world that we live in, that's very attractive. But that's not the gospel. And that is completely contrary to the essential doctrines in the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. But a lot of complementarians will point at egalitarians and say, oh, you believe this. You must be headed towards progressive Christianity. This must be your route. This must be your doctrine and a theology mm. also. It's a slippery slope argument, right? So yeah. if you start accepting women in ministry, eventually you're going to start questioning the Bible's teachings on sexuality and gender and um, salvation and the reality of hell. And, you know, you're not going to be taking the Bible seriously. And pretty soon you're just going to be full on liberal. It's not true. No. <laughs> We're talking about different issues here. Okay? Right. Yeah. Another thing that we kind of want to um, highlight here, oftentimes in this discussion, um, 
So we will um, we will interchange complementarianism and egalitarianism with the terms of patriarchy and feminism. So like complementarians will be like, well, you're just a bunch of feminists and feminists is contrary to the Bible and blah, 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 blah. And um, egalitarians will be like, but you guys are just you're upholding the patriarchy and we're here to fight the patriarchy down with the man up with the woman. And it's like, no, no, no. the position is called egalitarianism, the equality of the sexes. OK, so radical feminism says that men have have been in charge for so long and they have proven themselves to be so inept at creating just social systems that we need to overthrow men in leadership and only allow women to lead. That's radical feminism. The actual feminism that like began originally and actually can be traced, its roots can be traced to uh, the gospel itself, to the book of Galatians, for goodness sake, is that men and women are equal, equal in value, equal in their abilities, equal in their access to God. But what has, what happens, the same thing Amber's talking about here, we tend to throw out these very um, hot button terms and we just lump it all in. It's like, well, that's fake news. I don't have to actually listen to anything that was said because that's fake news. Or, you know, you guys are woke. And so I don't have to take you seriously because you're woke. And it's like, could we just, could we like calm down? That's why I don't like um, using patriarchy and feminism because those are socio-political terms. They're not theological terms. And so they bring a whole lot of baggage and assumptions and meaning to them that are not present in the biblical text. And so I don't think that they're actually very helpful uh, terms to use in the conversation. So you need to be aware as you start to have these conversations, you know, if you come out as an egalitarian or something close to it, you're going to be accused of being a liberal. You're going to be accused of being woke. You're going to be accused of being a progressive. You're going to be accused of, you know, giving up uh, the the central truths of the faith and things like that. But um, that's really, really not true. In fact, what I want to say here, you want to jump in? Yeah, just okay. so we're clear, the words complementarian and egalitarian are also not, not in, in scripture. The, in yeah, the scripture. totally. Yeah, forgive me. If, if I wasn't yeah. clear there, you're right. Um, okay. So what we want to kind of end with is a discussion or a reminder of the fact that the question of women's roles in the church is what we call a second order doctrine over which genuine Christians might disagree. Okay. It is what we call a second order doctrine over which genuine Christians might disagree. That doesn't mean it's unimportant. It doesn't mean that you can't hold your position firmly. It doesn't mean that you can't advocate for your position one way or another. What we're saying, though, is that our belief on women's roles in the church is not an essential to understanding the gospel or being a Christian. Okay? What ends up happening in this debate is that for both sides, we feel this pressure, other people feel this pressure. It's like, no, but this is so important and the stakes are so high. Like you need to believe the way that I believe. And if you don't believe the way that I believe that I don't even know if you're really a Christian. Wait a sec. What does it take to be a Christian? It takes a belief in the reality of God, in the substitutionary death of Jesus in my salvation based on grace through faith alone. So the doctrines that are first order, the doctrines that are necessary in order to call yourself a Christian are the ones that are associated with salvation. And these are the ones that Christians need to fight for and be willing to die over. Like these are hills to die over on social media, in the church, at Thanksgiving dinner with your family. These are the things that we are going to hold fast to, we will not let go of. These first orders are the absolutes. They define orthodoxy. That's the fusion of two Greek words, ortho meaning right, and doxy meaning belief, right belief. So these first order doctrines define right belief. They define what is heresy and what is not, and they actually define what religion you're a part of, okay? So some examples of these absolutes, there are only a small handful, like seven or eight of them in total, okay? But some examples are a belief in the triune nature of God, the Trinity, uh, the inspiration of the Bible, salvation through faith alone, um, the virgin birth and the sinless life of Christ. Those are things that like, if you disagree, you're not a Christian, not according to the historic understanding of the faith, all right? But then everything beyond that becomes what we call second order or third order. These things might be important, but they do not define whether or not somebody is a Christian. So second order are um, issues and matters of conviction. 
these tend to define your denomination. So like if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, he was equal with the father. He died for the sins of humanity and rose from the dead on the third day so that we could be saved through a faith relationship in him. Uh, then you're a Christian. Doesn't matter. Catholics believe that. Baptists believe that. Pentecostals believe that. All of the major denominations believe this. Okay. Then we get to these second order convictions. And this is where denominations start to separate themselves out a little bit. So like one of the distinctives of being a Baptist, and we're going to talk a lot about this, is we believe in something called the priesthood of every believer. This means that every single Christian has equal access to God. But if we were to talk to our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, they would say, no, there is a special priestly class and they have access to God that most of us do not. So this is a second order doctrine. It's so important. And I think there are a lot of problems with believing that there is a special priestly caste, but it doesn't define whether or not you're a Christian. It doesn't define whether you're Orthodox. All right. Uh, some other second order examples would be views of creation or the end times, modes of baptism, like whether we dunk or we sprinkle, things like that. Tithing. Um, I think tithing is pretty important. I'm pretty confident that it is the New Testament standard. But you know what? If you don't believe it is, that doesn't make you not a Christian. Then we get to third order doctrines. And this is basically opinion, you guys. This is like personal preference. This is where we take our own liberties. So like we, there's an infinite number of examples, whether it's musical styles in church, whether it's um, the, the ability uh, or not of a Christian to use alcohol, to drink, like that's a personal conviction issue. Um, that's not something that is commanded one way or another for every believer. Uh, if it was commanded one way, it would be commanded that you drank wine for your stomach, all right? So um, which Bible translation you use, there are all of these different third order doctrines that are way, like these are so far out there. We're not going to fight over these at all. It's just personal preference stuff. Okay. What, what we really want to communicate here is that the role of women in the church sits very squarely into a second order doctrine. If you have a family member or a friend and they disagree with you on this, that can be frustrating. It might be hurtful. You might be concerned about them, whatever, 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 but it doesn't mean they're not a Christian. That's right. Complementarians are Christians. Hardline complementarians are Christians. Full egalitarians, even like Christian feminists are Christians, okay? Because these are second order doctrines that define our theological structures, but not our theological foundations. So what we want to do is we want to model for the other side wherever we fall. And I don't for a minute assume that everybody in this room believes what I believe. I don't. That's okay. We don't need to agree on this. It's a second order thing. But what we want to do is regardless of which camp we fall into, we want to model what Amber said in the beginning. We want to have unity in the essentials. We want to have liberty in the non-essentials. And we want to have charity or love, graciousness with everything we do. Mm -hmm. We always want to be known for having this loving disposition towards other people, okay? We should live every single day, no matter, especially with a Christian, if you're in conflict with them, remembering that we are going to spend eternity together. Mm -hmm. So let's act like that, Yeah. right? Yeah. Like we can talk things out, but we don't need to create conflict that's unnecessary, mm -hmm. right? So good, so good. Okay, um, let's open it up a little bit. I wanna hear from you guys. Is there anything that jumps out at you? Anything that's kind of like the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about? Maybe a question that you might have. I'll probably uh, say, well, we're gonna talk about that at length in a couple of weeks, but you know, I'm glad to, to kind of interact. I wanna hear from you guys. I don't want this to only be lecture, although there's just a lot of material for us to present. So what are you thinking? What's on your mind tonight? Um, good, or bad, what indifferent? Was what was helpful, yeah. I have a question. Please. Um, about the Corinthians uh, first. Yes. Since, since we already kind of talked about it being specifically to the church in Corinth. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering about the verse that comes right before it. Because it says, as in all the churches yep. of the saints. Yeah, love it. So I love that. Okay, we're going to talk about it. But you know what? I'm going to give you a good answer. Okay, so if you're here the next time we do this, you're going to get both. Okay, the New Testament, when it was written, was written not the way you see it in your Bible. It was written in Greek, obviously. 
And what many people don't know is that Greek has zero punctuation, zero capitals, and zero spaces. It is literally just, you know, you ever seen like a word search? That is what Greek New Testament texts look like. Now, because over time people are like, this is a goofy way to write. It would be so much better if we had capital letters and punctuation and paragraph breaks. And Oh, wouldn't it be good if we added chapters and verses so that we could refer to these passages? We started to add all of that. What we have to understand is that all of that, the, the structure of the verses themselves was all added by well-meaning but non-inspired Christians throughout the centuries, okay? Um, so what's interesting about that passage in particular is the verse right before says, God is not the God of disorder but order. Am I quoting that relatively correctly? Then it says, as in all the congregations of the saints, the women should be silent. Now, again, stay with me here. We don't know where Paul intended that break to be or which clause or thought that that line is supposed to be associated with. So you can read it one of two ways. You can read it, Paul saying, for God is not the God of disorder, but of order, as in all the churches of the saints, period, new paragraph and thought. Women in your church need to be quiet, and here's why. Or we could read it as complementarians do. God is not the God of disorder, but of order, period. New thought, as in all the churches of the saints, women should be quiet and submissive. You see? So we can interpret that in one of two different ways. And the truth is, um, there's kind of equal reality for interpreting it one way or another. Um, it just depends on how you look at other verses. What, what we're going to discover, and we're, we're going to cover so many passages, and we're going to cover them in depth, but when it's all said and done, egalitarians and complementarians essentially agree the passage that matters is 1 Timothy 2. What will end up happening in a discussion is like, we'll go round and round about 1 Corinthians 11, round and round about 1 Corinthians 14, and eventually it's like, all right, we're both, we both just keep referring to 1 Timothy 2 all the time, so let's go talk about that one. Um, because there are all of these interpretive questions that um, allow us to see a verse maybe a little bit differently than it's been taught. I'll give you one more quick example. This is going to be a spoiler for next week, but hey, that's okay. And we're going to talk about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And um, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and God pronounces judgment on them for sinning, Right? Okay, so he says to the man, you, you're, well, he says to both of them, you're going to die. Okay, this is the first punishment. For the man, though, you know, the uh, work from the ground is going to be tough. The ground is going to bear thistles and thorns, and you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. And then he says to the woman, he says, you're going to have pain in childbirth, and you're going to have a desire for your husband, but he's going to roll over you. Okay, now the question, the interpretive question becomes, is God prescribing what he wants to happen from now on as punishment for their disobedience? Or is God describing the broken relationships to creation that they will have to deal with because of their disobedience? Is God saying, I'm going to make it so that work is hard, childbirth is painful, and y'all hate each other? Or is God saying, guys, I tried to tell you this was a bad idea, and because you've broken it, now there's going to be conflict between the sexes. Now you're going to find that creation, which used to be a joy to steward, is going to be a very difficult thing. You were so loving family and being united together as husband and wife. Well, you're going to have these things y'all don't even know about called kids yet, and it's going to hurt, okay? Is God prescribing what must be, or is God describing what will be? It's all in the interpretive approach that we take to those verses. And you're going to see this again and again when Paul is talking about, because even Eve was not, uh, Adam was not deceived, Eve was. We're going to be looking at these same sorts of interpretive questions. And there are incredibly valid ways to read these scriptures, but nobody ever talks about them because the dominant conversation, actually, nobody has talked about them for about 100 years. Previous to that, lots of Christians were writing about this stuff. But over the last 100 years, with the rise of feminism, there was this push like, well, we can't accept all of that. So let's go to the Bible and prove no, 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 no. And so we started accepting particular understandings and interpretations of all of these verses and forgetting that there is a rich and varied theological interpretive history over these passages. Okay. Um, other questions, thoughts? I would just say thanks. This is really, really great teaching. And I was going to 
Mm-hmm. I'm one of those oddballs. Yeah. Bring it. <laughs> um, and I just would encourage you, young people, when God places a call on your heart, mm. He fulfills it. Mm-hmm. And I came out of uh, seminary when women were not accepted in our denomination. Yeah. And uh, they were trying to figure out what to do with me. This is just a little preamble. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew God had something. And I ended up coming to Canada, pastoring in two churches. Mm. Um, when I wasn't accepted, and yet God said, "You're coming," yeah, and the churches had me, and it's just—it's been an interesting journey, literally pastoring in a denomination that women were not pastors, mm. and uh, so God, God knows what He's doing. He's a really smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's cool, and, mm. and I just retired. Mm. Congratulations. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, nice. That's awesome. And I told them, I said, the most important thing you can do in this marriage is find a church where you belong. Well, besides Paul Jesus. Yeah. It's really interesting just to be involved in this. I just really thank you. And just be encouraged. If God calls you to something, let me go in. You can do it. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. Thanks, That's Diane. Right. I'm glad you're here. I can relate to that. We've covered a lot of ground. We'll cover a lot more ground in the days to come. We will have a podcast of this that's up uh, tomorrow afternoon. You should see it again in our regular podcast feed. That's at Connect Calgary on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, whatever. And the reason that I'm making it available is, A, if you ever miss and you need to catch up, you can do that. B, if you ever want to re-listen and go back over it, you have that opportunity. And hey, if you want to share it, like if, if it's like, hey, I think this might be helpful to somebody in my life, then feel free. Um, I'll take the brunt and the blowback for it. You guys don't have to. You're like, well, this is what my pastor said. So um, and, and maybe it'll stir some conversation. And again, in the end, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all Christians. It's OK for us to debate. It's OK for us to disagree. We just want to make sure that we do it lovingly. Mm-hmm.